this psalm uh, is a song about worship. It's a psalm about worship. I'm going to read this passage, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll we'll dive right in. Psalm 95, or the the scriptures read this way. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great, is a great God, and, and a great king above all gods. In his hands, in his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are, his, are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, As on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had not seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Let us pray. Gracious God, Father, I am oh too reminded of my inadequacies. And um, Father, so I pray that you would help me. And Father, I pray that you would help us all to worship our way through this passage. To to hear your words and to be changed, transformed so that we can live lives that are that are filled with worship and awe and glory and, 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 and lives that bring glory and honor to you. And so God, we pray all these things the only way we know how. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, this past week, I uh, was out. Uh, I was out. I'm a glutton for punishment. I decided to go back to school. And uh, I was in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, it's kind of one of those things, when in Rome, and those of you who are from that region of the world, you would know uh, there is an ice cream uh, place in that region of the country named Grater's Ice Cream. Uh, It is, quite frankly, the best ice cream on the planet. And uh, if you're ever out going towards Ohio, Indiana, uh, just be sure, Google search, trust me, find a way and get there. And, and, and try the, the majesty of the big chocolate chunks that are in the, uh, and you, you must like chocolate chunks, I guess, in your, your ice cream if you like to go to Grater's, but they have the best. Um, you know, I, I'm reminded of that every time I go, and uh, if anybody ever asks for recommendations while I'm there, I meet other doctoral students, and they'll say, hey, you know, I've never been here, where do I go? And I can name a number of things, but I can guarantee you that Grater's will be on that list. Um, this next week, uh, Sarah and I are going to go, and I can guarantee you that at some point during the week, we will go to Graders. Um, and so uh, there's something that I have just done for you. I've just expressed worth. I've expressed value. I have actually worshiped. 
I have actually expressed and to, to you and, and given to you, uh, aspired to and, and given to you what, what is in our nature to do. You go to a good restaurant, it's so good, you tell somebody about it, right? You ascribe value, you ascribe worth to something, and then you tell other people that they must experience this also. This particular psalm is the classic text in the Bible about worship. Um, it is the venite, because in Latin, the Latin Bible, it begins with that word venite, which means, O come. Uh, you know, through the centuries, the Christian church has looked to this passage, maybe more than any other, uh, to inform their understanding of what worship is. Uh, this text tells us almost everything we need to know. It answers the questions, what worship is, why should we worship, and how can we worship? These are three questions that we're going to ponder this morning in our time together. Uh, what is worship? Why should we worship? And how can we worship? First, uh, why, what is worship? What is worship? I think it's probably necessary we define it a little bit. I kind of did a moment ago, but I think we can bring some more, uh, s s some more nuances to, to what we're saying. The answer of the Bible and the answer of this text, worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes, engages your whole person, your, your whole being. Uh, let me maybe break it down this way. First, Worship, according to this text, is something that engages every aspect of your being. Your, your mind, your, your will, uh, your, your emotions. Uh, it's, it's very easy to outline the text and notice that there are, there are three calls in this passage. Uh, verse 1, verse 6, and verse 8. Verse 1 says, uh, you know, that we're called to worship him with emotions. See the language here? Sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And then in verse 6, we're called to worship him with our wheels. This, this is language of submission, where it says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. And lastly, in verse 8, it's this language of reason. It's this language of thought and, and thinking. It's very logical. You know, he says in verse 8, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's the language of, of thinking and understanding. In other words, worship is something that engages your mind, your will, your emotions, your, your entire being. And this is really important to understand. Uh, if you just go through the motions, maybe even affirm doctrinal statements, maybe even affirm... Uh, uh, but, but you're not driven to joy, driven to treasure, which is something we talk about a lot here, treasuring Christ, right? Uh, it's not worship. Or let me kind of flip it the other way. It's also possible to get to, work, to, get to a worship service and have a, an amazingly visceral experience, right? Maybe you're stirred, maybe the music, the lights, well, I, I'm in, super into this but not have a transformed mind that makes you treasure Christ and want to grow in holiness, that's also not worship. And so, see what the text says. 
The text says this, basically, that, that bowing, kneeling without joy, or on the other hand, shouting and singing without bowing and kneeling is not real worship. So you may have a cultural experience, possible. You may be having an emotional experience. You may be having an aesthetic experience, but, but it's not worship. So worship entails the entire being. But what is it that engages the entire being? It's really the act of ascribing, assigning ultimate value to something. I mean, just listen to the language of the psalmist. Verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. O come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pastures and the sheep of his hand. You see all the emotion? All of the worship, all of the life transformation coming from something the psalmist is doing. He's taking inventory. He's assigning value. He's treasuring. I think about it like this. Imagine a, a, a young woman who receives a, a family heirloom, a necklace, from a grandmother that passes away. And she takes that necklace and maybe she puts it on her dresser at the house when she gets home. That necklace eventually finds its way into the drawer that has all sorts of other things that she's been accumulating for years. It sits there for, for a while. It gets covered up with all the other junk again. And then eventually, you know, every so often she may run into that necklace. She may say, oh yeah, this is my grandmother's necklace. But then it goes back into the drawer because she was actually on a mission to find something else when she was there. She just happened to see it. She puts it back in there. And, uh, and for years and years and years, this kind of goes on until she decides, hey, I think it's probably time that I clean up my, my drawers, right? And so she does just that. She begins to take stuff, has a trash can pile right here, and, a, and then another box right here of things I'm going to give away or, uh, and, and get, get rid of. Uh, so she begins to do that, and she finds the necklace. And she thinks, I can't just throw this away. I've got, I gotta give, I've got to get rid of it, but I don't know what it's worth. I don't, know, I don't know anything about it. So the natural thing to do, you have a piece of jewelry, a jewelry who do you take it to to find out its worth? Take, take it to a jeweler, right? Take it to a jeweler. And so she does just that. Best thing to do, take it to a jeweler. Let them assess the value of it. And figure out what it's worth, what, what, what it is. So she does just that. She takes it to the jeweler. The jeweler takes his little, uh, you know, the little magnifying glass. I had to look this up. It's called a loop. Uh, and they begin to look at the in intricacies of, the, of this necklace. By the way, it's a, it's a diamond necklace, but she knows nothing about it. She's looking at it, and I'm no expert, and, uh, and there's 
there's an actual science to this. I'm no expert in this. Uh, but, you know, if you've ever purchased a, a wedding ring or anything like that, right, you have cut, clarity, uh, uh, what are they? Color. Color, carrot, thank you, thank you, I need the help. Yeah, so you have all these different aspects of it. So this jeweler, he's looking at it. He looks at her. And he looks at it again. And he stops, and you can hear a pin drop. She's like, tell me, what is it? What is it? And he says, this is quite frankly the most amazing piece of jewelry I've ever seen in my life. The skill and craftsmanship to make this diamond necklace is a lost art. In fact, we don't even know how they, used to use, how they even used to make jewelry like this anymore. The art is totally gone. No one knows how it's done. This, this necklace is actually worth millions, possibly. Uh, it's worth more than anything else in my shop. It's worth more than anything that I've ever had in my shop. Assuming the woman didn't sell it right then and there, do you think she would have taken it home and thrown it back in that drawer? It would have found a special place. It would have found a place where she could see it, and it's on display, and it's, and it's there uh, for all to see. And more than likely, if she were ever invited to the White House, that's probably the necklace she would wear. The psalmist is calling us to do exactly what the jeweler is doing. It starts rationally. It starts with thinking. It starts with looking at who he is and, and what he has done. It enumerates. It inventories. It eventually moves to assign value and beauty of who God is. This, this is what worship is. It comes from the old English worthship. Worship is to see what God is worth and to give him what he is worth. To see and grasp his worth in such a way that you begin to live in accordance with it. Most people in our culture, in our culture, particular cultural context, we're not in Seattle, Washington, they believe in God. You know, in a sense that they have God. Uh, they say, I pray to God sometimes. I, I believe there's a God. They may even say, I go to church and there's a creator. But most people believe in God, but they have God in a way that the woman had the necklace. Completely unaware, completely unaffected of the value of him. And so this brings the first answer to the question, our first point this morning. What is worship? Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to God. Seeing what he's worth and living in accordance with, with it in such a way that it transforms our whole life. That's worship. Nothing less. It's not just a little inspiration. It's not just a little pick-me-up. It's not just something that makes me feel like I'm a part of a community, which we'll get to in a minute. It's this existential experience. It involves our mind, our wills, our emotions, every part of our being. 
it, it, it's ascribing ultimate value to God in such a way it galvanizes and electrifies and changes your, your whole life. And this is what worship is. Second question, why should we worship God? So why should, why should we worship? Um, why should we work at this? The answer to this text Though it may, you may not see it at first, it's, it's in verse 3. It's because you're already worshiping something. So again, by the opening illustration, you and I, we're, we're created to do this. I mean, this is in our DNA. This is what we've been created to do, to ascribe value, to ascribe worth, and to praise and to tell other people about it. This is what we're created for. And so you're already ascribing ultimate value to something. Your, your whole life is already controlled and oriented towards something in which you have ascribed this ultimate value. And so I'll put it this way. The world is not simply divided into people who worship and people who don't. The world is divided into people who worship things that will distort your life, people who worship the wrong things, and people who worship the only proper object worthy of the worship of our soul. Those are the only two prospects, right? To worship the created things or to worship the creator. So you're either worshiping the wrong things or you're worshiping the only one whose worship will not distort your life. Verse 3 says, here's the answer. Why should we worship? For the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. So what the psalmist is doing here in verses 3 and kind of continues through verse 5. Is he's saying the Lord God is a great God above all gods. The mountains are his. The sea is his. The land is his. Verse 3 tells us that the very essence of worship is to recognize to, to recognize God for who he is. You, you see, you will not be able to worship unless you recognize that your heart has already ascribed ultimate value to something. And so the purpose of true worship, true worship of God, is to recognize where your worship already is and to transfer ultimate value to God. That, that's, that's what change is. That's how change happens in your life. I think about it like this. Uh, John Calvin once wrote that man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. I mean, it, the heart is constant. The, the song we sang earlier, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, is getting to the heart of this that, that our hearts are driven by desires. So everybody has done it. Everything, everybody is living for something. And, and what that thing is completely orients your life. It, it can completely control you, control you. And so you're going to live for something. You have to live for something. Whatever uh, that thing is, you are so dependent on it. You're, you, you desperately want it. Um, you, you, you're so afraid of losing it. And you're so freaked out when anything goes wrong with it. 
You have ascribed ultimate value to something. And your life, your whole life, your entire being is oriented around it. Now, you begin to realize why the worship of God is, is absolutely transforming. And you haven't worshipped God unless it's changed your life. Why? Do you know what will really heal you? Do you know what all the problems, where all these problems come from? You know, why is it that some people freak out uh, about a breakup? You know, other people aren't. They're freaking out when something uh, goes wrong with their money. You know, person A freaks out about love, not money. Person B freaks out about money, but, but not love. And person C freaks out about something else. Uh, and so what are they going to do? How are they going to become stronger, happier people? You know, some people try self-help. And there are all kinds of things that people try. The Bible says that your ultimate problem is always what you worship. Only when you see God's love is more satisfying, more valuable, more beautiful than any other kind of love, you will, you will never freak out over relationships. Only when you see God's honor and relationship with Him is more beautiful, more powerful than any other form of honor or pleasure, you won't freak out about being criticized or, or failing. Do you see it? If you don't understand this, If you don't understand this, this is what worship. Worship is not just a sort of coming and doing duty. Worship is recognizing you already have assigned something ultimate value in your life. And that worship is a process of every time you reflect on him through singing, every time you reflect on and praise him, every act of worship is, is healing yourself, moving, pulling your heart off of those things that control you onto the thing that, that will not distort your life. And of course, all of our acts of work, uh, worship are, they're imperfect. But bit by bit, as we worship, and as we get better and better at worship, we change where our hearts look. We change where our hearts assign value. We, we reassign the ultimate value to the one who will satisfy us if we get him. If we, and, and he forgives us when we fail him. If you're living for achievement, you will fail that God. And it will never forgive you. You'll hate yourself forever. If the thing you're really looking for is love and romance or family and somehow you fail that God, it will never forgive you and you'll hate yourself forever. But the text here tells us that, that we worship a shepherd. and We're the people of his pasture. We're the flock of his hand. He, he's the one God who forgives you. He's the, the only God who died for you. So why do we need to worship? Why? Because we are going to worship something. 
and anything else but the real God will distort our lives. That's why. Anything else but the real God will lead us astray and leave us in despair and self-hate and all sorts of things. So having said that, we're realizing now that the importance of worship is not just something you're supposed to do as a kind of duty. It's the ultimate need of your heart. It's the ultimate need for your life. If that's true, but we never do it perfectly, we, we, have, we have to get better and better at it, then now suddenly the last question becomes very important. How can we do it? How do we do it? How, how, do, we, how do we worship well? And so, how, how can we be more skill, skillful at it? There are three things the text tells us right here that answer this question. There are three things you need to have in order to worship well. And I'm, I'm going to close with this, this. And I'm going to go ahead and give you my, my next point. Give you the answer up front. If you don't have community, truth, and gospel Sabbath rest, worship will never change you. If you don't have community, truth, and gospel Sabbath rest, Worship will never change you. So there's three things there. Community, truth, and Sabbath rest. First, community. It's so obvious, you almost miss it. It's one of the most important things about this psalm, and it's this. It's all in the plural. Listen to what it says. Listen, somebody else has listened to it. Oh, come. What does it say? Let us sing to the Lord. Let us. Us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him for songs of praise. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. So you almost can totally miss it. It's so obvious that you just totally skip over it. The reality is we are being called to worship in community. We're being called to worship in a group. That means unless you are a worshiping unless you are in a worshiping community, this is telling you that you will never know God as he is unless you are in a worshiping community. Preferably in a in a small group of people that you pray with regularly and in a larger group that you worship with corporately and this is the only way you're ever going to know him as he really is the only way you're, you're ever really going to get an accurate vision the the the, the one-on-one thing uh with god alone it doesn't work this whole concept it's really this an individualized american prideful concept that I can be a Christian and not be part of a community is ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. And so if you're here today and you're not part, I'm not trying to criminalize what you're doing. If this is not the church for you, there's another one for you. Go to that church. Go submit yourself to those people. Go 
sit under faithful preaching. Go be a part of other people who are going to pray for you and, and encourage you. And so, it will not really show you all the facets. To use the language of the jeweler again, right? We need community so that we can look at it from different angles under different lights and so we can see the excellencies. We can take the inventory. Let's put it this way. The more, think about it like this too, the more diverse that worshiping community, the better. And doesn't that make sense? I mean, the more, uh, the more you have young and old, the more you have male and female, all the races, all the classes, the more diverse your worshiping community, the more you're going to get an accurate picture of God, the more you're going to understand Him. Let me put it, let me kind of press on a little bit. This might make a little bit of people uncomfortable. Our church is predominantly white. We have a very limited, of, uh, a limited picture of who God is. That's troubling to me as a pastor. I, I pray that this, this congregation looks like the kingdom of God. I want my family to look like heaven. So not only that, a worshiping community will heal the breaches that divide the human race. It'll begin to bridge the gaps between cultures. It'll bridge the gap between races and classes and so on. And so, so first of all, you need community more than you think you do. <laughs> Secondly, if you want to get better at worship, you need truth. You need truth. How does the prophet know he is the great God and the great king above all gods? How does he know that, that uh, in his hands are the depths of the earth? How does he know that the sea is his? How does he know that he is a shepherd? How does he know that he is our God and he's given himself to us and, and we are his people and his pasture and his flock that we're under his care? How does he know all of these things? The psalmist has submitted to what the prophets of old have said about God. The, psal- the psalmist is submitting to the scripture as the self-revelation of God. By submitting to it, he's then able to, to make it, to take it, and to, and to say, now, now let's look at this, Let, let's use it, let's inventory it, right? Let's look at the excellencies. The truth of God is, that, uh, is, is what brings about the assigning of value that causes worship. If you're not willing to submit yourself to the truth of scriptures, if you're not willing to submit to the, to the body of truth as the revelation, the self-revelation of God, but you're going to pick and choose, design your own, you're completely, you, you, you end up completely cutting yourself off from any real ability to have a spiritual experience. You need the truth if you're going to have a transforming experience of worship. And lastly, you need gospel Sabbath rest. Look at the very last part of this passage. It's very confusing, actually. The first part of the psalm seems to be very good. 
and upbeat, right? It seems very obvious. Then all of a sudden, it's kind of like he goes left field, and, and he gets really, it gets really severe. It ends on this sort of this downer note. Uh, why would you take a psalm of worship uh, with such an up, upbeat thing and, and then do this? And so we see here that suddenly God says, you remember what happened in the desert? You know what happened in the wilderness when the children of Israel were, were on their way to the promised land? They were on their way to the rest that is in the promised land, the rest that was waiting for them in the promised land, the, you know, the land flowing with milk and honey. They were in tents, and they were in the desert, and they were restless and homeless, and they were looking for the rest of the living hope in that land of milk and honey. And so the first generation that came out of Egypt uh, were so stubborn and so unwilling to listen to me, they died in the wilderness. And so they wandered and wandered and wandered and died in the wilderness. And it wasn't until the second generation that they got, they got into it and they were able to experience the Sabbath rest. Now, why would a psalm on worship end with this? Well, the best, I teach a class uh, ever so often on how to study the Bible for a biblical counseling ministry in town. By the way, if you're interested in getting some training on how to shepherd people well, I can, I can point you in the right direction. I'd love to do that with you. But I teach this class on hermeneutics, and one of the phrases that, and I, this is not my phrase, I, I heard this somewhere else, but the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, okay, is the Bible itself. And so the book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes a big deal about the fact that this is how Psalm 95 ends. It's really the answer to why this psalm ends the way it is. The, the book of Hebrews asks a question. It says, if it's really true Joshua finally got the children of Israel into the promised land and they experienced rest, why was it that centuries later, so the psalm was written centuries after Joshua took the people into the promised land. Okay, why is it that centuries later, Psalm 95 warns worshipers not to miss out on the rest of God? And the answer comes in Hebrews 4, end of verse 5 and following. So God is saying this, verse 5. They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying, Through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted today, if you, are, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken to another day later on. So, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for people, for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work, who also rested from his work, as God did from his. So why did the psalmist 
in Psalm 95, warned the worshipers not to miss the Sabbath rest of God when Joshua got uh, when, God, when Gosh, Joshua got the people into the promised land. Well, the Hebrew, Hebrews writer concludes with this. He's saying, uh, what this means is that the physical rest the children of Israel experienced, it must be pointing to a deeper rest that is still available for us and it's possible for us to miss. There must be a deeper spiritual rest. And what would it be? Well, just as God rested on the seventh day from his physical work, so in the gospel, we spiritually rest from striving for salvation through our good works. So what the Bible, uh, what the author of Hebrews is writing, he's saying that the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived a perfect life in our place. And he died this substitutionary death in our place. He lived the life that, that we should have lived and couldn't. He, he died the death that we should have died. And religion, religion says, if, if I live a good life, God will bless me. If I, if I give God a perfect record, then God will bless me. But the gospel, true Christianity, says exactly the opposite. That God gives us in Christ Jesus a perfect record that we receive by faith. You see, it's exactly the opposite. The ultimate rest would be to believe the gospel. And if you believe the gospel, you rest from your work spiritually. And what that means is you don't have to live up to the standard anymore. You, you don't have to, 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 to be perfect. You don't have to, to know everything. Uh, you, you don't have to see everything as going well or not going well in your life. And if, and if, if things are going well and you're doing the right things, then, then God will bless you. He'll love you. Do you realize whether you're religious or irreligious, you're working? The gospel ends up, it ends all this tiring work. The gospel gives you deep and final rest. He already loves you. He, he already accepts you in Christ. And why would this be at the end of the psalm on worship? And here's, this is it. I'm closing with this. Because if you don't understand gospel rest, you're going to turn to worship and worship in, into, into one more work. If you don't understand this gospel rest, you're going to turn this idea of worship, whatever that idea may be, you're going to turn that into work. And you won't find rest. It's going to be one more thing on your rat race of life that you have to do you think that's going to help bring you joy? You think it's going to help bring pleasure to God? This idea of if I come to worship and I do it right and I pray well and I never miss church, then maybe God will bless me. 
instead of a trend instead of transforming your life it'll just be one more load weighing you down and you won't really be serving god you'll be serving the god of morality and you'll be looking at yourself not to him and you and you won't have a life shot through with joy and passion and thanksgiving, assigning value and worth to him. So I have this question, this final question. It's rhetorical, it's for you to ponder. Do you know how to worship? Do you know how to worship? May the Lord cause our worship to overflow out of our treasure of Christ and out of the rest that we find in his gospel, this good news. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you. We thank you, Father, for, again, just your kindness that you have shown us in Christ. Uh, Father, we see from your word your greatness, your the excellencies of your character, your essence, your nature. We see that you deserve and should be the, the proper, uh, the, the proper um, value from, our, from our, uh, our hearts. God, we recognize that we are prone to wonder. We're prone to, to worship different things, whether that be our job or success or uh, a marriage or the fact that we don't have a marriage or the fact that, that uh, this person has this or this person has that or if I just had, you know, children or if I just had, uh, you know, a bigger house or whatever that may be, Father, we know that there are so many things that drive us, so many things that we ascribe ultimate value and worth to. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would transform, you would tram, transform our heart's affections. Make the truth of you, make the, the gospel be the, the ultimate treasure of our hearts. God, we recognize that that is a work that only you can do. I can't white-knuckle this thing into making it a reality. God, we pray, Father, for that. So we pray for your spirit. We pray, Spirit, that you would fill us, that you would... You would uh, stir our hearts' affection, stir our hearts' emotions to assign value and to, and to scream out your goodness to the ends of the earth. God, we need your help. And you promise to do just that if we repent of our own self-work, repent of our own self-help or unbelief or whatever that may be, and to believe and rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ as our only way to salvation. So God, help us do that just now. I know we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen.